I'm gonna I'm gonna lead in with a little tiny um, a little tiny intro. Here we go. This is it. Oh, hello. You might be wondering why our doors are open on a Sunday morning. The thing is, the black cube is arriving, and therefore all the rules are changing. I'm here this morning with some guests from in the Incantations podcast, Scott and Dave. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. The thing is that there's been this spell binding us all for a long time called a non-disclosure agreement. And suddenly, miraculously, that has lifted. So we just thought we'd get together and uh, hang out in a coffee shop, which is why there's all this cool background noise. And, uh, you know, talk about what it's been like being GMs of Invisible Sun these past months. It has been a while since I've run Invisible Sun. <laughs> it actually has been a while since I've run Invisible Sun, too. Uh, we had a small group that had, you know, a good run months ago and really enjoyed it. But since then, I've done a lot more thinking about Invisible Sun than actually playing. Yeah, I've done a lot more talking. Scott has done way more playtesting than I have. Uh, he had a regular group and they met many, many times. Yeah, Scott, we, what uh, is... Wrapped... we wrapped up uh, sometime, I believe, in February uh, due to some, you know, uh, people moving and lifestyle change stuff. But we 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 ran basically every other week from last summer uh, through February. So we we had lots of uh, lots of sessions. You are probably among the preeminent uh, GM Visley in the world at this point. Well, uh, maybe uh, I was. Yeah, we, we our sessions weren't particularly long, uh, usually two to three hours. So I don't I don't know how how it is in terms of hours of time, but uh, we had a good time. That is excellent. Um, I don't know. I, I've run I've run a session zero, and I've participated in a session zero. Uh, do we want to at least compare notes with that? Or that like, like, where do we want to start with this? Because I have a lot of, uh, um, I guess I have a lot of caveats about my experience with the playtest because the playtest rules are going to be different than what shows up in the final product, but we don't really know how different. Sure. I think that's, that's fair. We probably all have lots of caveats, but I think that the, mm -hmm. the big thing is, you know, we've had some experience I guess I'll say this. Invisible Sun, for me, played enough differently from all the other games I have played or GM'd um, that it there's, like, broad themes that you we've all talked about. You've all talked about a lot on your show and everything already, but um, we have a chance to talk in more depth than without having to skirt around the NDA. So how about this? Let's talk broadly first about character creation in Session Zero and all of that. Um, Oh, I was I was reminded yesterday that it is not called session zero. It is properly called the first session, and that oh, okay. that, that is a thing in the game. I just learned, um, and uh, and then let's talk about um, what it yeah, just what it what it felt like compared to other non Invisible Sun games we may have played or GM, with the understanding that yes, everything will be different by the time the cube ships. Etc. Oh yeah. So 
uh, yeah, tell us tell us about what your first session was like. Uh, who wants to go first? Uh, well, I, I can go because I've I've done I guess three of them. Oh yeah, you should do. You should go then. Definitely. <laughs> uh, I had a, a a session a first session for a uh, a group that was intending to do an AP that didn't quite come together. Um, but we had uh, maybe two or three sessions after uh, the first session. So I've got that very early experience off of, I think, the first uh, uh, playtest pack uh, session, at session zero for the uh, my longer running uh, playtest campaign. And then I helped run one of the sessions at Gen Con last year. And th they were different experiences, uh, but there were some common elements. Uh, Especially in the first two, it really took some time for players to sort of warm up to the uh, freewheeling nature of the first session. Yes. But, but they really snowballed once it got started. Uh, so people were timid at first to introduce elements into the setting uh, and timid to introduce surreal elements to other players' backgrounds, neighborhoods, and the like. But once that uh, got started, it, uh, it, it really worked out well in all three. Were you doing all of your first sessions online, uh, aside from the one at Gen Con? The the two that I, the other two I did were online. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and and that's one thing I've always run into with online games is like, uh, if you're with normal people, uh, they tend to try to be uh, polite and courteous and not step on other people when they're talking. So maybe that contributes to some of the you know trepidation to adding new things to the setting and to other people's characters. It's an interesting thing with Invisible Sun because there's also the if you have people who are new to role-playing games in general, there's the natural intimidation of like, wow, what is this whole new thing? This is hard. Or there's a lot going on. And then people who are like veteran gamers kind of as you said, Scott, maybe they've come from a background where they're so used to oh, the GM fleshes out all the details and I'm not sure that I have the freedom to like insert something into the world outside of the narrow scope of my character. And that mm -hmm. took our group a little while to work through uh, or to kind of get used to for sure as well. That's interesting. Uh, Jason, don't, don't you have some brand new role players in your group? Has that started yet? It hasn't started because we're waiting for the final materials. So yes, our okay. upcoming home group is going to be a mix of um, people who have been playing the beta for a while, people who are, you know, experienced role players but have don't know Invisible Sun, and then people who uh, <laughs> have none of the above. Okay. Um, so for the session zero that I ran, uh, I ran it at the table with a bunch of my friends, uh, none of whom were in my regular RPG group that I run. Um, and I thought it went really well. It was a lot of fun. Everybody had a blast creating the neighborhoods and putting things in other people's neighborhoods. And I don't know, like the first session was pretty cool and i'm looking forward to doing it with my regular group like we're all we're all very familiar with each other we're good friends so i'm not really concerned about you know people being concerned about messing with each other so i i think that's going to go just fine yeah, the, 
the exercise at Gen Con was interesting uh, and, and a lot of fun because it was a large group. Uh, this naturally led to there being five or eight or so uh, most frequent contributors and about 15, I forgot exactly how many people were there, uh, people who were more, less frequent contributors. I, I, was, I was there. Oh, you were, were you in our session or were you in? Yeah. Um, no, no, I was, I, was, I was in the room with you that day. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you saw the, and you saw like there's, with a large group that tends to happen, with a smaller group, uh, there's more opportunity for everyone to contribute. But the, the momentum was good, and it might have been in part because there were not many consequences for stepping on anyone's toes. So if you re introduced some radical concept for someone's neighborhood, uh, that was okay because no one was ever going to actually play it. Uh, but in many ways, it was a satisfying gaming experience in and of itself. Now, is there anything with the um, first session that we have been avoiding? I, I feel like we that's been pretty open, and there's not a whole lot of new stuff there. That's probably true. I think the one thing I would say um, that uh, that maybe I wouldn't have said before is we didn't when we did our session. It was it was like you know we we got the you know we we got the initial round of beta testing stuff. I you know I've only ever done this with one group. We we all got together and we um, we did this thing face to face, and none of us had any. We were not at all used to Invisible Sun, yeah, the world or how it plays or anything, and um, we kind of we kind of brushed off, um, not brushed off, but we treated the uh, the rules for first session as a super super vague guideline rather than really kind of following it step by step. And the, mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that by the time we had played for a while, I as the GM really began to realize that. All of those steps and parts of it are actually, you know, they're super important and intentional. And the first few sessions of our uh, little campaign came real close to just going off the rails and devolving into surreal chaos. I mean, it was it was it was too much. It was too weird. Um, and I around that time kind of started, you know, Monty was giving a lot of interviews and there were different you know, they were talking about kind of some of the, the design diaries were were coming out. And I, I realized that the whole question of player agency, like really heavily giving players the freedom to do whatever they want, as opposed to as far as their own arcs and stories, those all really get intentionally counterbalanced by some of what's going on in the initial sessions with kind of choosing a desideratum for your group and... Uh, you know, establishing those connections and rooting people in their neighborhoods. And because we treated that a little more loosely, mm -hmm. we were missing some of the grounding, I think, that keeps things feeling personal and real amidst a very strange setting. And it, so it was, it was like very Alice in Wonderlandy. And then we actually kind of got together and had a session or, you know, a first session part two where we kind of revisited that and like tightened things down a little as far as our backgrounds and connections. And then group group motivations and then after that things went a lot more smoothly um so that was a lesson that i learned is like oh yeah these things act as countermeasures to some of the otherwise very open-ended nature of invisible sun um so that was that was interesting to bump against a wall and and then kind of have to re re-implement it 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I we had I had the same experience in that we did our first session and the locations and people they created there really connected the players and their characters to the world. So we didn't go off on a surreal terror and get lost in Wonderland. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. And the Desideratum, I don't know if we've really been able to talk I don't know if we've talked about that. I don't think that term even made it out in the open before. I believe you're correct that this is our first opportunity to really talk about it. Yeah, and the Desideratum is an interesting thing. I wasn't sure. That's one of those things that has me nervous for running the game because it's the, all right, now take all of these loose threads uh, that everybody has given you and tie them together in some way that makes sense. Uh, so very briefly, the Desideratum is basically the, the arc for the entire group, right? Not a bad analogy. Um, uh, and, you know, I remember we had an episode where we tried, where I was trying to figure out how to pronounce this word. So I think <laughs> yeah. we have talked about it a little bit, but it, it, I think it's important to touch on again. Yeah, the desideratum uh, options that are listed in the playtest material, at least, uh, and I suspect are, are close to what we'll see in the final product, uh, are, I'm not sure arc, it, it doesn't give the sense, it doesn't, it's not as developed as an arc in the sense of having steps and things like that, which we can now mm -hmm. talk about in much more detail, uh, but is instead almost thematic. Uh, so a desiderata might be the whole group is searching for information, or the whole group is... Um, starting a revolution. I don't remember if that's one of them or not. Uh, but they are just sort of, it, it's just an idea to help bring in uh, the what are potentially these disparate and, and varying uh, character arcs and uh, neighborhood and all of the forces that are pulling players in their own direction. This is a way to try to pull uh, everyone back together again. Yeah, and the the group that I had, I think they looked at the Desideratum as more of a an afterthought uh, because they were all way more interested in their own character arcs. And then when it came time to figuring out a Desideratum that would work for the group, they were just like, well, you know, this one feels interesting. Uh, but they didn't get too keyed in on it. Um, but I think it's an interesting tool for the GM to pick up and like I said, try and weave all those threads together and bring it through. It's interesting. I'm looking at it right now in the, the playtest materials, and it specifically says that the, you know, the arcs for the characters should be decided first. And then after yep. each character has kind of decided their starting arc, then the, you know, then the group decides what the sort of underlying um, you know, foundation of, of all those arcs are. And so the example they give is it says, uh, you know, for example, if one character is looking to avenge their family and another to uncover a secret, they both very likely need a good source of information to start them. And then it gives a couple of broad suggestions. Uh, the Desideratum can basically come in six forms, money, power, information, allies, travel, altruism. And it talks about those a bit. But this was something that I really, I think my players actually, the first time around, uh, kind of bristled at this because it was like, Wait, who are you, who are you to tell? They were afraid that it would feel too heavy-handed, like the you all meet in a bar and you know, like now you're all forced to be on the same track. Um, but we really did find that, you know, after a few sessions, people were going in such wildly different directions that it was really hard to sort of 
get everyone on the same page. And I, I really wished that I had actually followed this step explicitly from the beginning. So, <laughs> so you didn't even have a, a guiding principle for the group? No, we didn't. We were, you know, it was just each person with their own arcs, you know, like trying to go in different ways. And it was pretty unmanageable at first. My two of my players very quickly started trying to kill each other. So. Oof. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I've been, you know, intimidated by, which is everybody has their own story arc and how do you give them, you know, the, the appropriate time in the spotlight to make them feel like they can progress in that arc. It's something worth, worth but, digging, you know, digging really into. I know we've talked in general about that, but um, maybe Scott specifically, do you have any specifics about that that you might frame differently uh, with the NBA lifted than what you've talked about before? I don't think that there's something like that was NDA'd uh, that, that, I was, that I've been itching to say about Desideratum. I think it plays into a general theme that I've talked about a lot before, which is that different groups will have different levels of comfort with having a unified narrative versus having this more sandboxy uh, neighborhood and, and individual character-based story. Both are great. We see different examples of that even in the actual plays that, that are uh, up, uh, up right now. Uh, and the Desideratum is just a tool to help you achieve that balance however you choose to. So if people are just rare to, to do their character arts and explore their neighborhood and you find some way, and everyone's happy with how that's working out with spotlight time and the like, maybe the Desideratum isn't all that important. Uh, but if you are in the middle somewhere and you need a little bit of, of a justification for having more of a narrative, of a coherent narrative arc that unites the characters, the Desideratum is both an excuse to have the conversation about what that unified arc should be and a bit of a justification for the GM to intervene a bit to bring things back together again towards the desideratum. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have a super crunchy thing I want to talk about that I definitely could not have talked about before. And this is Ooh, uh, kind of combat and like damage track related stuff. Um, I'll start with a story. We had a, a, <laughs> a super interesting situation in our very first actual gameplay session. So we all got together, we went through first session and like set all this stuff up and got the group going and built backstories. And the the first actual gameplay session, uh, my player Damien had built a really great character who was uh, his his character's forte was he was one who who talked who uh, speaks with everything or talks to everything, Scott? Converses with, converses with everything. So all objects, you know, creatures, buildings, walls, stones, anything in the world basically becomes an NPC to him, uh, which is a fascinating... Having just that one character in the group fundamentally changed the nature of how everybody moved through the world. That was really cool. Um, but we've gone through all of this. We played the first game we you know the first evening together we had a good time but we hadn't really gotten in a combat we were just kind of exploring and figuring things out and at the end of the night i was like cool you know we haven't even tried combat let's give this a shot and i just introduced you know i picked a random creature from the set of creatures we had available and it attacked right and it turned out that so here's the nitty-gritty like Essentially, you as a Vizlay 
are incredibly powerful with the magic you have available to you, defensive magic or offensive magic or whatnot. But if you strip away all the magic from a Vizlay, it's like a human being walking around who basically has nine hit points. <laughs> um, because mm -hmm. you can take an injury and another injury, and then when you take your third injury, that becomes a wound. And then you can get another wound, and if you get a third wound, you're dead. And that's it. And, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but, you know, if you... There's the same rule is true, I think, if I remember correctly, that, like, a large weapon, you know, a, a two-handed broadsword that uh, is... That's that's six points. That's two wounds. Like, that's almost going to kill you if you get hit by that once. Um, am I remembering any of that incorrectly? Uh, I think that lines up with what I remember. The The weapons had the same sort of ranges as Cypher did. Uh, so, yeah, six six damage would, yeah, take away two-thirds of your total life. Sure. And there, there's ways to mitigate that. If you have a bunch of physicality built up in your pool, you can spend the physicality to, you know, ward off one of those wounds at the moment you take it. But, you know, all other things aside, each character is pretty darn weak. Nine hit points, essentially. And so, you know, I got this creature and it attacked with a strong attack and <laughs> within two or three rounds of combat, I had accidentally killed Damien's character. Like, <laughs> he, he, he took a hit and I said, oh, wait a minute, let me tally this up and see how this works. You take, you know, and it was, he was dead. And I, there was just, it was just inescapable. And this particular group was the kind of players where it made more sense to just follow that through rather than like, oh, hey, sorry. And I figured he would come back as a ghost and we could play with all of that or whatever. But he just decided um, to like let the character die and create another one. That's another story. Mm -hmm. But um, but it was a really strange moment <laughs> to have just straight up killed a character that we had just spent hours creating, like, within moments of the first combat starting. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit more about how all of that works uh, in terms of what combat really looked like and how your players learned to manage or mitigate that uh, being physically very, very weak and then magically very, very powerful. I had a similar experience. The The first combat that we had, because the playtest material said, hey, uh, if you're running your first session, not the first session, you know what I mean. Um, so your first real play session, right. uh, do this, do this, try this, and try out a combat. So I was like, all right, well, we'll make sure they run into some some bad guys. And I you know, dug through the, the, the playtest material, grabbed a monster, and said, all right, I'm going to have them run into some, you know, fairly straightforward, you know, monsters, people. I think it was, I had some, you know, bad guys that they ran into out in the, the wastes outside of Saturn. Yeah. And the first attack came in. I hit one of them for like six damage, nearly killed them. <laughs> and the, the cool thing then was they turned around and their, the, the maker that we had had a sword. Uh, it might have been an ephemera or something that just did a bonkers amount of damage. And it would just one shot the bad guys when he would hit them because they, the bad guys were also fairly squishy in comparison. Sure. So I kind of had the same thing, but the other way where they took a lot of damage, but then they just wiped out everything. Yeah. I had a, a similar experience in terms of the you know, combat was deadly. Yes. Uh, the funniest uh, short, uh, 
uh, comment was that the, in fact the first time during the playtest we were directed to simulate combat uh, we this was about session three or so of the of the campaign and uh, the, none of the players had thought to buy weapons and we realized as we played the playtest that uh, yeah you, you need those <laughs> and uh, so that it said something about the nature of the game that so you can go several sessions without even having considered what kind of weapons uh, you want to have because that's just not necessarily the type of game this is so it is part of the game. Uh, once we got that sorted out, things got a little bit better, but uh, the combat is more focused on mitigation than it is just sort of accumulating hits. Um, so, you know, you, you, it's not the sort of, uh, you know, uh, 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 F20 game where you might have 70 hit points and maybe you lose 20 in a chunk or something, but you, you could take several hits. I think it's really built around trying to mitigate all you can. Because getting hit is really, really bad. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. We we kind of saw that. I mean, it leads to a cool, swingy kind of feeling. We saw that in the uh, the Raven wants battle, right, with Siru um, in the uh, in their live play, where you know it kind of felt as though things were fine and things were fine <laughs> because he was dodging or you know doing causing a distraction or doing this thing or that thing but then there came a point all of a sudden where it was like oh yeah now i have two wounds and basically if this thing touches me again i will die and i am out of all of the other sort of bene that i had built up in various ways that i could use to to mitigate this and suddenly i realize i'm very exposed and frail and weak and so there was a I think a, a very felt moment of horror of like, oh, wow, I really am this close to death <laughs> that happened sort of suddenly. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a very different feeling than that slow chipping away that happens in many systems. Uh, do either of you recall what sort of penalties you accrue as, uh, I can't think of a better term, but as you go along that damage track? Were there any? There are. I think you get a penalty in your in, in all of your pools for a particular category. I think, is it all your? I think it might be all your Certes pools, right? Something like that. I, yeah. I think each wound that you get gives you a. This is something actually that changed between two of the rounds of the the beta, or maybe changed between the beta and the rules primer. I think, but um, I think that when you get a wound you get one, you know, scourge maybe or something in all of your uh, Certes pools. And then when you get a second wound, you get another. And so each wound that you have accrued not only brings you that much closer to death, but also makes it that much harder to perform physical actions. So it's pretty, uh, taking a wound is pretty intense. Scourges in pools, what, is, uh, what do the scourges in the pools do again? Were those the things that you spend or were they a permanent penalty? Let me see if I get. Oh, I forgot what you. Because there's scourge and vex. One is permanent, one is temporary. Um, but I don't. I, I thought it was the permanent one that you get from the uh, damage until that is healed. Okay. But I'm not positive. I mean, that's. Right. I've got it. I've got it here, and this is from the rules primer, which I think is more likely to align with what's in the final cube than what we had during the beta. So. Um, when a character sustains 
Let's see here. Uh, I'll look up Vex versus Scourge in a minute. But when a character sustains one wound, they gain a Scourge in every Certes stat pool. When they sustain two wounds, they gain two Scourges in every stat pool. When they sustain three wounds, they are dead. Um, and then uh, <laughs> a Scourge versus Vex is... Um, let's see. Um, a, the Vex is the smaller one. So a Vex is like a negative Benny. So if you get a Vex in a particular pool, mm -hmm. like I have, you know, my accuracy pool, uh, and if I get a Vex in that, then it's it stays there until I decide that I want to get rid of it. But in order to get rid of it, I have to, I can spend it out of my pool, but I also have to take a Benny along with it. So it it sucks the life out of that pool a little bit. Um, Oh wait, no. I'm sorry. At least, at least in our rulebook, it says the GM decides when you spend a vex. So if I—that's interesting. I had missed that. So if you have a vex in your pool, it's basically a a frailty in the background waiting to happen. And at some point, the GM says, "Oh, you take that shot," but your vex kicks in, and uh, you 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 have to. It it causes you to subtract one for your venture. And in order to negate that, if you want to negate it, mm -hmm. then you have to spend one of your money to balance it out. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious about how the, that rule's been clarified, because I thought that in the playtest, if you had a Vex, then you had to spend it the next time you used that pool. Um, yeah. It, it but may, I, I could I'm just not, I'm not sure. That. Yeah, this, this is an older version of the rules, and it... Um, from earlier in the, the beta, and it says the GM decides when you spend a Vex. I don't know how that ended up. Um, it does say, and I think this has probably remained true, a Scourge is like a Vex, but it stays in your pool and forces you to subtract one from your venture for every action related to the pool. You don't spend a Scourge, you have to get rid of it somehow. So it's more like a curse, like a you know in D&D or something, where you have this thing, and then in the story, you have to find a spell or perform some story action to, like, release yourself from the scourge and in the meantime it just constantly hurts you so do either of you remember how healing this sort of damage works to the physical or the the anguish that you get this was a question jason i had when we talked months ago i think um that we i think we may have done this differently and i i'll admit i i was winging it um i had separate tracks for anguish and physical damage uh, for wounds uh, and because I liked the notion of someone being like highly anguished but physically fine or vice versa but it wasn't entirely clear whether uh, you just accumulate through as the same track damage that is physical or uh, mental or yeah so for background it was unclear even even through the entire beta from the way it was worded so i'm very curious to find out what this is like in the final book whether you ended up we, we you've got wounds and you've got um or sorry you've got injuries and wounds but you've got uh that's true for for mental and physical and there's two ways you could read the beta materials and interpret it and one is that you've got essentially four tracks so a physical track tracking your injuries and then your wounds and then a mental um, injuries and a mental wounds. And so once you've earned three injuries on the physical track, then you would get one wound on the physical track and, you know, same for a mental. Or you could interpret it that there were instead kind of three tracks where you have uh, 
injuries, physical, injuries, mental, and then a singular combined wounds track where kind of whatever, maybe whatever the final, you know, the final of your three injuries that you took, if that was physical or mental, that then that would count to one, one of your three combined wounds. Um, and we, we played with both and we ended up settling on separating them all the way. So there was essentially one physical set of tracks and one mental set of tracks. I think for the same, the same reasons that you came to that conclusion, it just felt better in our gameplay. Yeah, and I guess we'll have to wait to see <clears throat> how that one shakes out once the, the cubes hit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is an example of, of something that I think is going to be much, much better in the actual game once we get the text, is the playtest document, which is, you know, to qualify everything we say, was bare bones. It was, here are the rules, basically. Uh, there weren't a lot of examples that would have served to clarify any of these issues. Uh, so I'm, I'm expecting those to probably be more prevalent in the books themselves. And so we, you know, everything we say is not only based upon preliminary playtest material, it's also based upon skeletal playtest material that I, I freely admit I may have been misinterpreting. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe I should just say yeah. for a listener's benefit, anyone who might be listening to this and worried, <laughs> what we received were a bunch of super unedited Word documents that still had notes for... Like what we had read hadn't gone through any proofreading yet. There were like notes in the margins, like, hey, you know, no notes from Bear the designer saying like, oh, hey, don't forget that this, you know, word should be written in this way or whatever. So, you know, uh, there was a whole lot of time for uh, reworking and clarifying and proofreading and editing between what we saw and what ends up in the cube. So, uh, yeah, so we're we're not we're not worried that the black cube is going to be uh, any of any less quality in the editing than any other MCG product we've ever seen. But uh, we never got to oh, see no, that. We never got to see the final version of it. You know, we, we should probably reach out to somebody who did an actual play. Like you just had Alan on, you could have asked yeah, him like, have. what's up with the uh, wound in <laughs> English? Like, do you know how totally. that works? Cause they, they've played with a, Probably a final version of the rule. Yeah, I think that's true. I'll say my experience with the playtest documents was not unlike my uh, experience with the playtest for the Strange. So, uh, and as you see, for those of you who've read the Strange core rule book, you know there's there's a lot more in there than just a skeletal reading of the rules. But the playtest was similar. Uh, it's the playtest is not all of the material that shows up in the uh, the final game, and so our some of the ambiguities we may have experienced with the playtest will not necessarily be present in the black cube at all. Um, it just, we saw early material just because they needed it early enough for feedback to uh, be able to inform the revision process. Yeah, we had the same sort of thing going on with the Numenera, Numenera 2 playtest. We got new documents every week and it was really interesting to see just how much changed uh, from week to week in that thing. It's so fun trying to track those changes and reverse engineer like what conversation was what was it that happened between the last version and this version that caused this whole passage to change it's like you know what did they run into in their playtest i wonder <laughs> it's really interesting yeah there there was in the first playtest for numenera 2 we had, we were testing out some system and then in the following week they were like 
uh, we need to do some work on this. We're just taking that whole thing out. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, so one of the things that I've been really thinking about after having run it is awarding XP and stuff at the end. XP is just the umbrella that encompasses all of the different advancement points you can get. Like I still, I'm still not sure exactly how to, you know, hand out XP and based on the playtest material, it, it seemed like the GM would award one or two points at the end of a session based on the uh, players, uh, I guess, feedback and impressions of how things went for their, their character. So that's, that's how I, I did it. Okay. I probably give out too much of the, um, Oh, acumen, I think is the, uh, the, the simplest, uh, XP currency, uh, with which you buy skills and some other things. We, we, we had an abundance of acumen, uh, and I didn't give out enough joy and sorrow for character advancement. Despair. So I'm, I'm hoping for a little more guidance on how to balance that, but frankly, it didn't matter that much. Um, mm -hmm. and it's an easy adjustment to make and it's the same problem every RPG has. Uh, but uh, it is a balance one will have to pay attention to uh, where your characters want to focus, where you want, how quickly you want to advance. And acumen generally works towards advancement in your skills. Oh, it, you, you generally get it rewarded from advancement along your character arc. So, and then the join despair is just character. general. Did things go well or poorly or something in particular? Right, and uh, I was giving—I was basically giving one joy or sorrow per session, and a couple or three acumen, and it probably should have been the other way around. Okay. Uh, because acumen, maybe because the, just the currency that my party may not have been as interested in acumen uh, development as others are. Acumen's used for skills, and I believe for spells. It's acumen. Acumen is and, uh, yeah. Acumen is actually very broad, and this is something I didn't quite grok until the end. Uh, I think it's worth noting, and this took me a while to wrap my brain around, there is absolutely no such thing in Invisible Sun as levels uh, for the PCs. Like, everything in the world, mm -hmm. NPCs and everything else has a level, but PCs themselves, even in, you know, Numenera, you can say, oh, well, I am a Tier 2 or a Tier 3 character, and that concept is absolutely abolished in Invisible Sun for the Vizlay, for the, the PCs. So instead, what you yep. have is Acumen is the point by system that lets you invest however you want, and it's really broad. The most obvious thing you can do is to buy spells or skills or secrets, but you can also use acumen to establish yourself more deeply in the world, and you can, for instance, buy connections and say, oh, I'm going to spend from my pool of acumen to, you know, I really want a contact that is a merchant, you know, from the whatever guild who is going to give me access to blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of work that out with your GM. And so it, it allows you to really broadly build your character in the world in any sort of minute kind of granular way that you want to. And then um, the closest you get to levels are the joy and despair, which are they're tied to specific moments that are connected to who your character is separate from the arcs. So acumen, mm -hmm. in order to take on a new arc, you have to invest some acumen, typically. And so if you say, oh, I've just decided that I want to... I've heard about this secret that is uh, going to allow me to, you know, cast this great spell. 
or, you know, like, like perform this great ritual. And my character's arc is now that I'm going to seek after that knowledge. At that point, you have to take a couple of acumen that you've built up and invest them in the bank and say, cool, I'm going to spend two acumen to start this arc. And then you earn a couple of acumen as you move along that arc. Once you've started your process and once you have the climax of performing a great step toward your final thing, and then once you resolve it, and then in the end, let's say you've invested two acumen to go after this knowledge, then you know, you'll know you get four acumen back once you've completed it or something like that. So it's like a little economy. And then those... Um, oh, go ahead. The, I mean, you also get acumen back as you progress through Yeah, the there's like uh, checkpoints along the way. So maybe you'll get acumen when you... Once you've made a plan, like let's say your acumen is a heist. I think this is one I remember pretty clearly. You know, once you have that heist mm -hmm. scene where you're all sitting down and you're making the plan for how you're going to break into the thing or whatever, you get some acumen at that point. And then once you maybe, you know, get all your materials and get yourself lined up and like are set up outside the bank, you know, okay, you get some acumen. And then once you actually successfully break in and, uh, you know, do do the thing then that's like the climax of this arc and you'll get some acumen so you're you're, you're gaining acumen along the way so the total number of acumen you're going to get back through the whole arc is a lot more than you've invested but you can't just add this is a story management thing i can't just sit there and say oh i'm going to add six arcs to my character today um because at a certain point you you can't add any more arcs because you've run out of acumen to spend to start new arcs. And so it keeps a little bit of focus so that each character only has a couple of things that they're trying to do at the same time, um, which is really interesting. So that's, that's acumen, and those you use to establish your character's strength in like general ways in the world, but the kinds of things you can buy with acumen are the kinds of things any character could buy. Whereas Crux, that you earn from mm -hmm. combining Joy and Despair, are separate from whatever arcs you have at the moment, and they're, who is my character in his or her deepest nature, and did this event that just happened to me really bring me, you know, did this, did this make me deeply happy or sad based on who I am as a person in this world? And then those are the things that allow you to advance in your order, or in your forte, which cause the greatest uh, noticeable outward growth in your character in terms of kind of the power you have. So they're, they, they feel quite separate in play. Yeah, the, the fortes generally get you new abilities and new, new powers. And in the order, as you advance in the order, yeah, you need crux. You also need a lot of social work Correct. to you know get yourself promoted basically yes uh and then along with that you get a whole bunch of access to like if you're advanced you your grid it becomes easier to fit spells into because it well it like makes them it makes your smell spells smaller right something like Do that. you want to talk about the spell folding for a minute because that's another really interesting thing that we haven't seen in public anywhere uh, yeah, why don't you talk about spell folding? Because I'm not sure what you're talking about. Unless it's the Vance thing where your your grid becomes easier to manage. Did you did you run into that, uh, Scott? I'm not sure about. What oh, you mean by sorry. Spell so there's it's really kind of 
interesting. You can, on the one hand, your grid, as events, you have spell cards of different sizes that you can fit into your grid. And uh, as you mm -hmm. as you advance it in the order of the advance, your grid gets larger, so you can fit more tiles. But there's also, I don't remember whether these are secrets, or I think it just comes as part of the nature of becoming a better advance, but you actually can learn how to essentially fold your spell cards in half. <laughs> so in addition to having more space in your grid, you can also double down and take a very large card that takes up, you know, the entire grid, literally fold it in half and, you know, tuck it into a, a more densely packed corner of your brain. And so there's a way in which at the really high levels, the number of spells you can have is actually sort of exponentially increases uh, because you can you can be doing both adding more spells and also more tightly folding your spells to fit into your brain, which I thought was was pretty neat, and that's not something we saw in either of the actual plays. The uh, the folding, do you are you suggesting we're gonna be actually folding cards? Well, I've wondered because that's how it talks about it in the materials. But then when we saw the kind of the unboxing and stuff, it looked like those cards were like sturdy cardstocky cards rather than cards that you could mm -hmm. literally bend. So I don't know. It's yeah. possible that mechanic has gone away and I'm talking about a concept that never made it into the final or there's something we don't know yet about the cards or something else. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have any advances in my playtests, so uh, I'm taking a look to see what what happens with advance. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look real quick. Yeah, I, I had no advances in my either of the two groups I played with. <laughs> a lot of the advanced mechanics, uh, I am uh, unaware of. I think of. by nature, everyone's first response was to kind of eschew the advance, like yeah, advance is kind of like playing D and D, so I'm gonna do other things, but. The Vance is actually, I, I also haven't had a Vance that I've played with in, in the group, but uh, they actually have some really interesting things going on, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to begin watching uh, people play them in the real world and see how that works out. Uh, yeah, so as you go up in the order of the Vance, you, the spells that you learn, uh, you can reduce the amount of space uh, a certain number of your spells take up as to how you're going to do that once we actually have the cards? I don't know. But, uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, that's one thing we have no experience with, any of the physical components. Yes. It's going to be really fun to see how that feels in play with all the little... Because, okay, let's see. It seems like in the box we've got... There's a bunch of little punch-out tokens for, for instance, Acumen, Joy, and Despair. Um, and then there's the mm -hmm. Vance cards. Um... And I, I think there was one token that was the, oh, what was it? I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it until I think maybe the unboxing video, but it looked like uh, it was something that you passed around the table that one person had, I think, at any given time or something. But I can't, I, I can't imagine what mechanic that. that would be for. So maybe I'm making that up. Um, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure what that one would be. Um, was it one of the medallions that the backers are getting? I don't know. I'm probably I'm probably imagining things. I don't know now. Um, but yeah, it's going to be really fun to have the tactile, yeah. uh, the tactile thing going. Um, I, I know I'll be involved in one online game um, and then one in-person physical game, and it's going to be really fun to compare notes on how those feel.
Yeah, because we're also going to have all of the the cubes or whatever it's going to be for the various pools. And, uh, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure pretty much everybody that backed the game is getting Wicked Keys as well. It's not everybody who backed. I Well, unless this changed at the end. I know it. there were certain things during the Kickstarter where if you, they would announce a key fall and say, like, you know, if mm-hmm. if you back during this period of time, there's a key fall happening these next X number of hours or whatever. And if you do that, you'll get a wicked key included. Um, but it's possible that later they went ahead and had enough success that they added at least some wicked keys to everybody's. Uh, I don't remember. I could have sworn they did because there there were a lot of vocal people uh, complaining okay. about. Oh, I don't want a wicked key. <laughs> well, and who, and who I wouldn't? Want that too. <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, yeah, I get it, but also, I mean, it's. it's <laughs> sure. Sorry, people. Sorry uh, for my uh, audible disdain <laughs> for the complaining. I've got a, a, a logistics question that you may have heard the answer to. Uh, do the advanced kits ship with the black cube, or is that a subsequent shipment? Uh, the Vizley kits will be later. I'm sorry, Vizley kits. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be shipping later, so they're they're not even they haven't been produced yet. So I think they're doing all the the black cubes, and then they're going to do all the Vizley kits. So I wouldn't expect those for a few months. That's what I'd expected. I wasn't sure if there was anything announced about that, but I I believe you. So I have one more broad topic that I want to bring up, and then uh, maybe we'll have final thoughts and call that the end of a a show. But um, a really interesting thing that we ran into, which at first felt so strange that we thought it must be wrong. Um, And then after a while we realized like, no, this is, this is invisible sun and how it works and actually became comfortable and had a lot of fun with it is the fact that uh, right out of the gate characters even characters you've just rolled can be incredibly, incredibly powerful um, and can do incredibly powerful things in the world. Uh, so we had a situation... <laughs> Damien, the, the player I mentioned whose character was killed in the first game, um, he ended up rolling another character who... <laughs> this was really fun. The first character died. Rather than becoming a ghost... Um, he just just ended. That was it. His corpse was left, you know, on the the shore next to the docks. Um, and the the next character who came along uh, was a. We just bent the rules a little bit and started him out as a ghost who was a, a very malevolent ghost whose initial arc was to obtain a body. And the first body he came across was the body of Damien's former character. So we we went through this whole thing where Damien spent the first you know two or three sessions of the game attempting to essentially possess his former character's body. Um, and then uh, it, was, it, was really, it was really dark, and it was really good, and it was, it was fascinating. Um, but uh, he eventually succeeded. But once he had a body and was walking around doing things, one of his specialties that he put a lot of focus on was uh, sort of a, a marionette ability, where as a wandering spirit, when he was not attached to a body, he was able to not quite possess, but briefly compel someone in the world to do things. And there was a certain point early on where 
he was, let me think, an apostate, and therefore, if I remember right, had the ability to... Here's how this works. If you have a spell in Invisible Sun that you want to cast, uh, it has a level, and in order to cast the spell at that level, you spend that number of sorcery. So if I want to cast a level 3 spell, and I have 3 sorcery in my pool, I can spend those 3 sorcery, cast it at level 3, and um, it will, um, you know, let's say it's a damage spell, it will then do 3 points of damage. Um, if I am casting that, those 3 points actually get added to my venture, though, in the case of spell casting. So essentially, if I cast a level 3 spell against a level 3 creature, um, it's just going to fire. It's just going to work, because uh, it's equivalent. But if I cast a level 3 spell against a level 6 creature, there's going to be a, a roll involved, because there's a chance that I'm not going to uh, cast it effectively enough. Um, it's been long enough that I'm, it's possible I've broken something. Does that all vaguely sound correct to both of you? Okay. Yes. Um, however, I can take that, and I believe you can uh, you can add extra acumen, or sorry, extra sorcery, um, Benny, to kind of juice the power of a spell. And by default, you can just add one um, out of the box. So uh, you can, you know, mm -hmm. if I want to spend one sorcery, then I can cast it as a level four spell, spend four sorcery, and you know, get those effects. But there are secrets you can learn, or um, other things you can do that allow you to cast, to spend more sorcery and cast at an even higher level. And this character had put all of his focus into that and really optimized himself. He had set up his character at the beginning to have a whole bunch of sorcery relative to his other qualia um, and spent all of his energy like earning these secrets so that he could cast any spell he could cast at uh, very high levels by spending a lot of sorcery. And so very early on, <laughs> he was uh, a new character, and he came up against... I threw a really, really high-powered PC, you know, like a level 9 P uh, NPC into the mix that was intended to be, you know, untouchable. <laughs> and at some point, he successfully mm -hmm. poured all of his sorcery and all of his resources and all of his, you know, hidden knowledge and everything else he could do into a fail-safe marionette spell against this level 9 character in the world and got to the point where it was, like, you know, fairly fairly likely he would succeed and then did. And then, you know, took my boss character from me and just was in control of it. And it was, like, absolutely mind-boggling as a GM because I was like, wait, no, this, this, this should not have been possible. And we went back and looked and, like, indeed it was possible. Um, of course, Damien's character was then absolutely depleted, like had spent everything, every magical resource he had available to him, and was now that weak nine-point human with no magic <laughs> that we just talked about. So it, he made himself very, very vulnerable in exchange for having, until the spell depletion kicked in, having this really powerful spell effect. And um, and so that that was just a really interesting experience of like how the deep and powerful magics of Invisible Sun feel very different from, you know, level 1 D&D wizard is not going to <laughs> do anything uh, interesting um, until slowly you gain this power. Um, and so 
yeah, I just that was a really interesting thing that the mechanics lend to a, a different type of hyper powerful gameplay that is a, a resource mechanic. So I just wanted to throw that story out there and see whether you had any similar experiences in your games. Uh, I had a similar experience and it, I, I had the same reaction. Um, I had set up some sort of, uh, not a puzzle, just some sort of obstacle that the characters were trying to get through. And the weaver came up with an idea to weave some spell together. And then he just poured a ton of sorcery into it in order to make it really powerful and effective, which basically got through the problem. Uh, and I was thinking, man, that's crazy adding that to their venture in order to cast this in order to get through this. But it kind of makes sense because then after that, the weaver was wiped out. He had no sorcery. He was basically done for the, you know, casting magic until he was able to get, you know, take a breather and refill some of his pool. But, uh, yeah, uh, magic can be really powerful if you're able to get your sorcery into it, but it does come at a big cost. It reminds me of statements in relation to the cipher system about how ciphers can be incredibly powerful and can ruin encounters. <laughs> and uh, that, that was a, a complaint early on. And uh, Bonnie Cook and others, in, in designers for the system said that that's intended that the ciphers, uh, the, the fact that some ciphers can, can simply moot uh, individual encounters is part of the design of the game and that what they're hoping is that you aren't building uh your sessions kind of 4e D, D style where your entire session is three encounters because of all the things you have to do for each of those encounters but instead they want you telling more encounter you're having more encounters telling more story and telling stories that are robust uh even if someone pulls out the volcano summoning cipher uh or in this case pumps all of their points into completely augmenting uh, an individual spell and just go with it uh, and let the story go and let the players be very, very powerful and give them interesting things, uh, challenges that they can't necessarily handle uh, just by shooting it really uh, expertly uh, or a very large fireball or, or in, this, in this case, a little more exotic uh, with the kind of possession spell. But I think it's part of the kind of MCG design ethos is uh, to let players to tolerate players being very powerful and derailing individual encounters just because that's, they may think that's where the magic happens uh, in storytelling and things go in unexpected directions. And everyone can kind of be entertained uh, by these unexpected uh, new directions for the story. I have a really great example from a, re a recent example from my, my lunchtime Numenera campaign. We had been building for a long time toward this battle, battle with like a huge kind of final boss that was going to be, you know, whatever. And it was one of these situations where like the boss was a very large creature and then had a bunch of small creatures that it had sent after the characters. One of the characters had come across like maybe a level 10 cipher that was a uh, an existence knife that by nicking something, it not only, it doesn't kill the thing, but it like travels backwards through the lineage of that thing and kills its very earliest ancestor, thus wiping out the ancestor and all the lineage from ever having existed and possibly having butterfly kind of effects that ripple through the story. And so she stabbed one of the small progeny, not knowing that it would do this, but it went back and therefore caused the larger boss creature to never have existed. 
And in fact, that boss creature was the whole reason we were on the particular spaceship that we were on at the moment because of whatever. And so she essentially took all of the characters back in time about four sessions to when we were on another spaceship, never having diverted to explore this whole corner of space because whatever. And uh, so we had to just like stop and just take... I had to go take a week to like rethink everything and figure out where the characters would be now if this whole thing hadn't happened. But it was, oh my gosh, it was so much fun. Um, but also completely unplanned. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I, I've run into an interesting time-traveling cipher where uh, they were fighting some gigantic beast that was, you know, coming to trample through the little town that they were protecting and things went terribly wrong for the party and i think you know one of the characters got killed and all sorts of things were were happening and one of the characters said oh i've got this cipher that rewinds time five minutes so i'm just going to use that and we're going to do this again that's amazing so they got to do it again with more knowledge of what was going to happen and they you know <laughs> it uh it turned the whole story around it was yeah, really that's, cool that's neat Cool. Well, do you have any... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And, and I think that sort of story changing and derailing uh, uh, moment is what they want magic to feel like, or at least magic to have the potential to feel like. I think that's very, very fair and very true in our experience. Yeah. Do you have any kind of final closing thoughts um, about the whole experience of uh, running Invisible Sun so far and or your your hopes for what it will be like in coming weeks when the cube ships? Hmm. Uh, I hope we get it soon so that we, can, we have some topics to talk about on our show. <laughs> I know. Yeah, one um, one secret uh, in relation to our show and uh, uh, incantations podcast, we may be playing with the format a little bit over the next few weeks as we eagerly await the advent of the black cube uh, and uh, just play around with the with the podcast uh, until we have several pounds of material to talk about in great detail soon. Hopefully, very soon. I look forward to that. That sounds fun. I know one of the things I'm super excited about is the beta test contained minimal, minimal, minimal kind of lore and setting material possible. Uh, and so, which is, you know, maddening, but also really exciting because I, I feel like even for us who were in the beta, there's just like, there's so much that we don't know and haven't gotten to sink our teeth into. And so, um, yeah, there's there's still so much to look forward to. And I just can't wait to like, roll around in the lore and <laughs> know more about what's happening. It's driving me crazy. And see how much of my playtest campaign it invalidates. But I'll, I'll yeah, smile and be happy. That will be it. true for us as well, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you for your time this morning on this unscripted, unedited podcast. Uh, do you want to uh, just let everyone know where, uh, where you can be found in the future and... Uh, We'll call it a show. Well, uh, you can find us at uh, incantations.blogspot.com. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a new URL coming up uh, in the near future. Uh, but you can also find Incantations 
on iTunes and whatever other places you listen to podcasts on. Um, yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter. I'm uh, Tex underscore Red and Scott. I am on Twitter. I'm I'm at uh, Agenseer. So I, I should point out that if if you go to incantations.blogspot.com, you find the refrigerator door. I don't know what this is, um, but we have incantationspodcast.blogspot.com where Oof. you can find our episodes. <laughs> Thank you. Now I want to find out about now I want to find out That's about the refrigerator funny. door. Yeah, now I'm curious. But we'll we'll have a real <laughs> website at some point. <laughs> Apparently, it's from 2005, and it is fascinating. Okay, I'll sort of investigate this later. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Uh, happy Invisible Sunday. Ooh, woof. Oh. Uh, happy Invisible Sunday. <laughs> 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 <laughs>